everybody, and welcome to the first ever edition of the WFI Scouting Pod. Uh, hopefully we're going to build quite a series here uh, with some excellent guests and get into scouting. You know, we've done a little bit on the tactics side with Stevie Grieve, who hopefully will come across and, and join us on this at some point and give us opinion on it. But joining me, and he will be my co-host and, and obviously on every pod with me, we have uh, Lee Scott. Lee, it's the first time I've spoken to you. You're very, very welcome on WFI. I know you've written a couple of pieces for us in the past, uh, which we're very grateful for, but the first pod, John, and uh, you're very, very welcome. Thanks very much. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting started. This is something that I've, I've wanted to do for a while now, and, and coming together to do it with you guys just made perfect sense. I think that going forward, we could make something really good here. Absolutely, we can, and just massive thanks for 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 thinking of us. It's sort of it's sort of in keeping with uh, our growing reputation. So uh, all things are good. no, definitely <laughs> all things are good. Well, tonight we have an author. Um, we he very kindly donated a book to us, which we we had we raffled off in a competition on WFI quite recently, in the form of uh, Dan Fieldsend. Dan, again, first time on WFI. You're very very welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. Yes, thank you very much, Dave. I'm delighted to be on here and maybe just for our listeners maybe you can give a little bit of background of what you do and and your book and so on if you if you want to throw a wee plug out there and a wee, a wee sort of resume and what you're doing please feel free right well at present i'm just plugging the book eh? plugging the book anyway so you know thank you for that opportunity um i started off doing a bit of scouting on merseyside youth scouting and it progressed towards building up contacts and you know getting started on this book um, so that's where I'm at right now. I was a scout, then a coach. Now I'm an author. That all sounds very technical, but the the one thing we must remember as well you're a, you're a good Liverpool man, so you, you'll be <laughs> you're, very well, you're you're in good company in WFI. I get pelters here for for being too Liverpool biased, but ah, hell be damned, I don't mind. <laughs> I'll take it all day long. <laughs> I'm happy to be biased. Uh, aren't we all? Uh, hopefully, big season coming up, but that's another story. We'll get into that as the season goes. Listen, let's let's get into this pod uh, straight away, and, and you know, I'll start. I'll start with you, Lee. Maybe start around what makes a good scout. You know, are, are technical scouts more important than those who attend games? You know, we hear this conversation quite a bit. Uh, you know, about how, how scouting is done in the modern game, and it's all done by video and so on. What what do you think of the merits of, of both systems? I I genuinely think yeah, that you can't have one without the other if you're going to have a successful recruitment set up within your club. Personally, I I work at the moment uh, just to work for a professional club as a scout, so I I don't do the technical side. I I go out to games, sit and stand, watch players, and submit my report afterwards. So so that's kind of my side of it. But as for the technical scouting, I think that. Technical scouting can save your club so much money in the short term when you're scouting. If you can have a group of people sitting in a room on a laptop or whatever with that, there's Y Scout, there's Sky Seven, Scout Seven. That there's so many different kind of platforms now that, that clubs can use to access data and information. Even the free ones like Who Scored, you could use that. If they can sit there and they can use their their formulas or their algorithms to to kind of identify key players that they think might suit the club. And then you can task the, the scouts on the ground, as it were, to kind of go out and watch those players specifically. So instead of just being sent a game to say, right, off you go, watch, watch this game in the in the championship today and then come back and do a report of what you've seen. Instead, you're kind of targeted with what you're looking for or who you're looking for. So I think that kind of you, you definitely need to have both. I don't think one's more important than the other. But... Kind of as for as for what makes a good scout, I think I think scouting something that doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. A lot of people think that it, it sounds great when you you think that you're going to get paid to go and watch football games. But the, the whole thing and the thing that I found hardest at first was to stop myself from watching the game. The club that I I work for isn't the club that I support. So quite often last season I was getting sent to watch the games of the club that I actually support. So so kind of to separate yourself from being a fan and realise that you're there to do a job and not to watch the ball, but to watch the, the man that you're assigned to and kind of focus on what they're doing instead of kind of getting caught up with everything else that's happening. I think that's something that people really struggle with. So I, I think you need to realise kind of that you're there to do a job and that you have to have attention to detail. You, you can't be kind of watching the ball down the other side. If you're watching a centre-back, for example, the worst thing you can do is watch the other team attacking 
how to watch that team attacking because you don't know what the centre half team is positioning. So you kind of have to have be able to to watch football differently. Just sounds strange, but if, if I go to a game working, I watch the game differently. If I go to a game just for enjoyment, it's it's kind of a different a different approach that you have to take. Yeah, it takes a little bit of time to get used to, but I think that is the main thing. That and obviously being able to identify what is what is good and what is bad in a football field, but that, that's kind of a given. No, and, and you make a point there about you know watching the man and not the ball. And, and it's something that, w- that we covered actually early on in the Tactics podcast, and, and Stevie had me trying to trying to you know view a match the way he analysed it. And you know, I, I'm, yeah. I'm just a heart and soul supporter. I, I cannot do that. <laughs> but you know, you mentioned those systems. You know, we talk about you know the video side of things. Uh, Lee, it's quite quite different. You can sit in a stand and you can watch a specific player. You can watch him for the full ninety minutes and put your attention on him if you wish. But in a video situation, you know, obviously the advancements we see it in Sky, we have player cam and so on. What kind of systems are in place at these clubs? You know, if you're if you're a video analyst or a video scout in this, you know, because I think from from a layman's point of view, I think probably the listener wouldn't really have a great deal of knowledge about what that looks like. Maybe maybe you could enlighten us on that a little. The the website that I currently write for Eat Sleep Eat Sleep Drink Football at the boss. So kick me if I don't get that right. Um, we have, uh, <laughs> absolutely, you, you'll get used to it. We have a Wisecout platform that we use for our analysts when they're, they're looking at matches or they're looking at players. Um, so we have access to the full platform that Wisecout provides. Um, when when I go into Wisecout, say, for example, um, if I'm at a game on a Saturday afternoon, I'll go home that evening, I'll write the report, and then afterwards, by about 10 o'clock, I can log in and, and everything from that game I've been at, and bear in mind, this is the, the Scottish Premier League, this isn't, you know, Champions League, this isn't Serie A, this isn't the Premier League, this is the, the Scottish Premier League, that game will be fully coded, which means that the the people that work in the background for Scout, they, they have taken that game and they break down each individual moment, so players are tagged, for example, if if the left winger dribbles up the line and puts a cross in, then the, the one-on-one movement and the cross will be separately tagged. So I can go back in, choose whatever player I want to look at, and then, for example, break it down as far as I want to see all of his one-on-one moments attacking, or I want to see all of his key passes in the game, or I want to see all of his defensive recoveries in the game. And then that will automatically set me up with a, a playlist. So I can I can just sit and press play, and it will take me through every clip that's been tagged with that action. Um, so the the platform we have, I mean, when we first got it, I found myself watching Moldovan second division football. That's kind of how deep this goes, how deep those those platforms go. So you have access to all this data and all these different clips of players, and then it's just a case of, I suppose, clubs from around Europe and around the world that are using these platforms. They have to find a way to to make this work efficiently for them, because as I say, I mean, if, if you just sit me down in front of West Scout and say, "Right, well, you've got six hours," then Christ knows where I'll go. To be honest with you, I, I could end up watching anything. It goes back two or three years as well, so I can sit and watch games from two seasons ago if I really wanted to. But I think you, you kind of need to have a process in place. So a lot of these clubs now, the, the ones that use technical scouting, the ones that use it well. They, they will kind of have a profile of players that they like. So, for example, we, we are looking for a, a wide attacker who can play as part of a three-man attack and he needs to be quick. He needs to have a crossing ratio. He needs to have an effective pass ratio above this benchmark. And then you can kind of plug all that in and see which players come back. And you can you can kind of take it from there. So, yeah, they, these platforms really are a huge advancement for, for football, for recruitment and for scouting but only if they're used well. It's all very well having all these things, but if you're not using it properly, then you're just basically wasting money. So I think clubs need to need to be smart enough and need to realise exactly what they need to be to be doing, what they're looking for before they go into the recruitment process. I think that's the important step. And and for yourself, Dan, obviously, um, you know, obviously you're a fay with these systems. What what would your opinion be on on what Lee's talking about there? So first of all, when you said what makes a good scout, I think it varies in terms of what youth scout is in terms of then what then makes a good senior football scout. Um, there are intangibles that belong to both. So a good youth scout 
first of all, he is the face of the club he represents. And the human elements often get forgotten in this. You know, a good scout is not the one who can identify a good player because that comes naturally to anyone who's at these tournaments, who's at these matches. The coaches will come up to you and there's contacts there that the good players are evident and they scream at you how good they are. The good scouts are the ones who then have this charm about them and a charisma, who have the ability to go up to parents and offer them the trial because some of the tournaments that you'd go to in my catchment area, there'd be Everton, Liverpool, Man United, Burnley, Man City, and they're doubled up. So you compete with maybe 10 of scouts. So the very best scouts are the ones who are the most charming, who have the most charisma and empathise with the parents. Now, as well as that, so as that runs up into the senior game, then the good scouts have a good base of contacts across their network and their platform that they operate. So it, whether that be just the North West, whether that just be Liverpool, or whether that be the nation, if you're a, nation, a national scout and you're, you're actually looking to spend club money, you've got to have these contacts that if, for example, there's a great player who's at Man City and he's a little bit disillusioned, you've got to be able to find out about that before Man United find out, for example, because that's what scouting is. It goes back to the military term of being one up against the enemy. The very best scout, they have that human element that they're always on their phone, that they, they are able to empathise with the parents and such. At senior level, so it changes then. It goes from being an individual and looking to scout for your own benefit. For example, when an under-eight signs for the club, the scout's name's on his contract. So then if this guy goes on to make 10 Premier League appearances, the scout will get a sum of money. That's how it works at the youth level. But in senior level, they will scout as part of a team. So Lee's mentioned why scout there. There's why scout, there's scout seven, there's Panini. It depends on the club or software they use. When I went to Benfica, they have their own internal database. That Yes, they have Scouted and, and other platforms, but they've built their own database that they use for analysis and they use for recruitment. So they'll have, like Lee said, three years' worth of videos. It could go back further, it could be less. On, For example, Andrea Pilo, that if they want to look at, and they show me videos of Pilo when I was there, that the scouting department could look at that and see how he'd fit. Uh, as well as as well as the the analysts who are looking to you know prepare for the upcoming games against them, so that's the, that's the shift there. When they're working in a team and they're working as part of a department, they'll use the the software first. They'll watch games, and if a player shines in a particular game, they'll make a walking profile, and by that they mean they'll watch him over two or three games, and it it, it depends. It's like a seesaw. Sometimes a scout can recommend upwards for the managing director and the director of football and the chief scout and say this is a guy I've looked at and I'd like to go and take a closer look at him in the flesh or it could come down the seesaw in the sense that the chief scout at Juventus has often told the scouting department there to go and take a look at certain players they'll start, they'll watch him once then they'll make a walking profile of a player and it's only after maybe a month or so because it's expensive to do so They'll go and watch players in the flesh. And one of the things, some people think that it's it's a variation in, in the sense that some scouts just watch in the flesh and some scouts sit behind a computer. And that's not true. The department will work together and they'll all watch videos on a computer and then they'll go out, if they're impressed, they'll go together in the flesh. You know, wisdom in numbers. And they won't go, whereas at youth, at youth level, there's the individual. A team of scouts will go and watch a player. And they're preparing them, and they're preparing a lot of different profiles for the upcoming transfer window. So, for example, now the the kind of reports that clubs will be doing now um, will start from pre-season and it'll work up towards the winter window, just as the tail end of last season will be what was preparing for this window now. And Dan, you know, you mentioned there, and, and, and it's something that just spiked my interest. You know, you were talking about looking at eight-year-olds and, and, and upwards, and, and those very young players. And the fact that, you know, there's such a competition there for, for, for the good players that stand out. I think it being a, being a scout in that particular environment involves keeping your, keeping your mouth shut and your cards very, very, very close to your chest at all times. It does in the sense that you represent the club and you've got to be the ultimate professional. 
because nothing can be taken out of context. So you'll go and you'll you'll watch a player, and obviously, if he's that outstanding, you'll go straight to the to the parent first because you know that when I was there, we had development centres across the city, and you'd know when there was openings and what centres needed populating, so you can go and act instantly. There are times where you've got to be a bit coy about it, and you'll call up the other scouts, you'll get other guys to come and take a look. Um, if you spot them first, he's your player. But again, you can ask some of the more senior scouts to come and take a look at players and you can have your cards close to your chest in this sense. What we say, you never point at a player. So if you're scouting and you want to highlight a player to your fellow scouts, you know, you'll turn your back on the pitch and you'll say, have a look at the boy there in the red boots who's playing on the left-hand side. You know, you'd say... Yeah, fake interest, so to speak, because you've <laughs> it, it 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 can be, but it's it's just the good techniques that are in place. That if we're stood and we're just staring at a pitch, then obviously Everton will gravitate and Man United will come over and they'll want to know what we're looking at. So you can walk around and you can be two or three pitches away and still watch this particular player. So you, you've touched on it, Dave, and you're absolutely bang on right there in what you're saying. No, I, I just find it fascinating, you know, that obviously in today's market, you know, like, like footballers are such a big commodity, the, the price of them and, you know, the, the money thrown about football and, and, and we start sort of scouting at such a young age and there's so much riding on it. You know, Dan, obviously with your experience there, in, in your opinion, you know, which clubs around Europe would be sort of you know, prime examples of, of good recruitment. Obviously, you know, you see the Ajax model there, um, who are, who are very good at that. You know, we saw a very young Monaco side last season. Um, you know, Southampton there seemed to be a, a, a very, very good club at recruiting, very sensible recruiting. What, what other clubs do you think around Europe are, are, are the, the, the sort of the poster childs of this? So I think what you talk about there is in terms of from a youth level, in terms of recruiting good youths. For an example, you could say that Chelsea are probably the best in Europe, but there's the glass ceiling there that obviously has this great reputation because they're offering the players the platform and the opportunity, whereas Man City as well are an absolutely unbelievable academy and they'll win youth tournaments so easily because there's so much investment in it, but the players aren't getting the opportunity. I, I think then of a senior level, the good recruiters. So there's two ways of looking at it if we're talking about adult football. There's profit maximisation, which is in terms of signing players with the potential to sell them on, which you get a good reputation for being recruiters because that's how your signings are often gauged, the profit. And then there's the shift, there's the success maximisation clubs who will then look to sign perfect, ready fit players to acquire success from that. So, obviously, people talk about clubs like... This is talking about profit maximisation. There's the likes of Southampton, who you've highlighted. There's the likes of Porto. There's Benfica. There's the Salzburg clubs. Or sorry, the Red Bull clubs, which is quite interesting, actually, if we look at Naby Keita now and how Leipzig have gone from being a profit maximisation club to that now being within the Champions League and they've shifted their mentality now towards being success max, uh, maximisated in that they don't want to sell cater and they've made that plainly obvious because they, they're now in the Champions League and they're looking for success. So going back to your question about what clubs are the best recruiters, you could talk about Southampton all day and the certain variables that they stick to that very rarely are they signing guys who are over the age of 27 you know, they're not spending out on guys from the same league. They're not spending a great deal of money on guys from the same league because there's a hindrance attached to that. So everyone they, they're signing, they've got one eye on selling on. And Les Reed, since he's come in in 2010, I think it was, who he's had this great reputation. It was him who was at Fulham who took um, Chris Smalling from, I think, Maidenhead. He's gone to Southampton and he's, he's really implemented this philosophy that that from a youth level, from the first thing you spoke about, they're giving the youngsters opportunities to play and there's no glass ceiling at the club. And they're also bringing in guys, right, I'm going to butcher his name. Is it Pierre-Emile Holberg, is it? Who they got from Bayern Munich. Who That's the perfect type of player for them. He's like 21, he's 22. And their final intention with him will always be to sell him on in a few years' time. They're investing in his potential and they're looking to get a profit from him. 
And Lee, from your perspective, um, you know, what Dan's been saying there, would you differ in any way? No, no, generally not. I think that Dan touched upon it, that it's important that if clubs going to recruit well and if they're going to build their squad in a, an efficient manner when they're, they're talking about spending their money, that they need to have uh, almost an identity or a model that they're going to work on. So when you, when you talk about the Red Bull clubs, obviously it was Ralph Rangnick, who's, the, who's in charge there at Leipzig. Now he he very much has come across and he's implemented the model that, that Leipzig won't sign players that are older than 24. So they're very much looking. Originally, initially, I think they were looking at profit maximisation. But as Dan says, now that they're a Champions League club, the, the shift has almost come to, they're now looking to get as far into that competition as possible. And that, that, to be honest, might be a result of the fact that they are backed by by an energy drink company who, who see the, the media, the attention they'll get from the media and the, the brand recognition that they will build from a Champions League run may well be worth more to them than the sale of a player like Naby Keita, who may or may not at this point still still make the move. Personally, I don't think he will in this, this window, so that sort of remains to be seen over the next few weeks. But I think that as well as obviously that there are clubs like Southampton who who are head and shoulders above most teams in Europe. But I, I'd almost take it a step back. And I've always had my eye, obviously being Scottish, I'm not a Celtic fan, but I think I've always appreciated the, how good the recruitment is at that club. When you talk about Southampton and you talk about Virgil van Dijk and Vincent van Yama and Fraser Forster, but all these players, but at Celtic originally. So Celtic are the ones that have scouted these players, taken them into British football kind of gave them, given them the base for them to go out and, and develop and to learn the British side of the game and to, to acclimatise to this country. And then they sold them down to down to England, down to Southampton specifically for a profit. And uh, it was quite interesting to note that at the end of last season, a man called David Moss, who was the head of recruitment at Celtic, he's actually left the club now and moved to Middlesbrough. Not Middlesbrough, sorry. He's moved to a team that's gone up Huddersfield. Huddersfield, yep. he's now head of recruitment there. So it's interesting seeing the moves that Huddersfield are making. And you can see parallels between what Huddersfield have done in this transfer window and what Celtic have done previously. So he's obviously already had a bit of an impact there. But I think, as well as looking at these kind of clubs, a club that I didn't really appreciate the job they done on the recruitment side until this summer. I was watching the European Under-21 Championships, and obviously, there's no football on. I'll, I'll pretty much watch any football that comes that come across. So I was watching the, the under 21s and I hadn't realised that there were so many good young players at Sampdoria in Italy. You, you kind of look down the list and there's there's the Czech Republic striker Sheik, who's just um, he's had a, a move to Juventus collapse this week. Uh, they've just sold the Slovakian centre half. I think it's Skriniar. Uh, they've just sold him into Milan for a huge profit. And then they've got Karol Linetti, who the, the Polish central midfielder. All these players kind of come in under the radar to a team like a team like Sampdoria, who are coming in, they're picking up players from, from different countries in Europe, taking them into Italy, and then they're selling them off for a profit. So it's been quite a blessing to me to come across a club that I hadn't really recognised as being good recruiters before. If you talk about Italy, it tends to be you look at Juventus's model, which is I think um, you touched upon it in your book, Dan. How extensive the the kind of the recruitment model is at Juventus, and and how in depth they go at building almost a a conveyor belt of, of talent of Italian talent there. But you don't really think about the clubs lower down the pyramid, like Sampdoria, like Sassuolo, who who do recruit very well, and almost from from smaller markets that you don't realise. So I think that when you talk about good recruiters, that there's a, a couple of different ways that you can view it. But it all tends to be clubs who have a real identity and an idea of exactly what they're trying to do in the transfer market, as opposed to to certain clubs. For example, West Ham, I think, have been a disaster over recent seasons with some of the signings that they brought in. I think they, they it's very much a scattergun approach when they they'll throw money at a problem and and hope that some of their signings stick as opposed to turning around and having a, a defined sense of what they're trying to do. So I think that it's important that clubs kind of take a step back and have a look at what they, they want, what they expect from themselves before they go out and commit their money on sign-ins. You touched on it early. The, the first thing you said, Lee, was that a good club should have an identity and a model. And you're absolutely, honestly, you're bang on right. And that works at both both sides, that 
at youth level, the academy director will brief the scouts and he'll tell the team of scouts, this is the type of player we're looking for, you know, and this is the perfect fit. This is, a, for example, an Everton player or the Liverpool player. And then their identity up at senior level is the same. So you mentioned Red Bull as well. When I went to Salzburg, I spoke with the scouts there and a quote he said was that when we're looking for players, we're looking for guys who play to Ralph Rangnick's philosophy. I hope I've said that correctly because I've never been able to say his name. In that they play fast and aggressive in the transitions with good team spirit and quick regains of the ball. It was his direct quote. So you've highlighted West Ham there. That What is the club philosophy at West Ham? I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you where Zaza was going to fit in there alongside Andy Carroll. But you know that the good clubs, the likes of Salzburg and even Liverpool and Celtic as well, you've mentioned are brilliant. They have this clear identity and philosophy and the signing players who fit into that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you, you talk about what, what's going on there with, with Ralph Ranjik and, and at Salzburg. I think you, you also mentioned you know, René Maric who's obviously um, done very well for himself since he was a he was kind of a blogger with Spielverlagering, the, the German tactic website. Then went on to he was part of the coaching staff for the Salzburg youth team that won the Europa League for, for under nineteens this season. So the Champions League for under nineteens this season. And now he's gone on to join the first team coaching staff. And from speaking to him, he very much speaks about the fact that they, they're in a constant evaluation process of their younger players. So they, they're constantly benchmarking their players on these philosophies and on the, the style of play that Ryan Yick's kind of taken with him and, and implemented in all the Red Bull clubs. So every training session, the players are kind of hooked up to, you know, the, these heart monitors and the active sprints are being measured so they can make sure that these players are performing to optimum. So I think definitely that the, the Red Bull clubs are definitely an interesting case study in recruitment and wonder what's going forward. Guys, you know, you, you touch on uh, Leipzig there and you touch on the Navi Keita thing and, and you, you know, you talk about they're sort of evolving in, in you know, they're an eight-year-old club and, and their their philosophies may be changing. But, you know, it's, it's a train of thought that has come to the fore in the last couple of days with the debacle around Liverpool and, and the Navi Keita uh, deal. Do you both feel that maybe... Leipzig are doing themselves more more harm than good at the moment. You know, obviously they had the, uh, the the massive publicity they've got out of it. You know, there's this dominating dominating the English press. But you know, if you're a young player and you see you know a player like Keita who we're led to believe you know wants to make a move and Leipzig are, are seen to be blocking it, could that be detrimental to them long term? You know, obviously you guys are, are a lot closer to these clubs and a lot closer to the way these work. I'm just really curious, but you know, because this is out in there, a very, very hot topic at the moment. I'm just curious as to what you think, Lee. I think that the, the overriding thing for young players is going to be the status of the club as a whole. So for a young player now, if, if you think about Naby Keita, was brought by Ralph Ranić again. He he was brought by Ralph Ranić to Salzburg from a, a club. I think it was Tour, the, the club in France. He was brought to Salzburg for a couple of seasons. That they developed him to a point where he was thought to be um, one of the the most complete midfielders and kind of young midfielders coming through in European football. And then they transferred his rights over to to Leipzig in time for for the promotion to the Bundesliga for this season. I, I think that for Salzburg and for Leipzig and for Red Bull to have this kind of this ability to to act as a conveyor belt for talent at different developmental stages. I think any young player who's well advised will will kind of look at that model and see that there, there's real value there for them. There there are so many facets to this Navigator deal. I think one of the, one of the, the biggest ones is Ranić himself. When Ranić was a coach at Hoffenheim as a younger man, he coached Hoffenheim and he almost took them up to to the to win the title at one stage and there was a, a transfer going through I think it was Luis Gustavo the Brazilian midfielder and Rania could come out and said that without Luis Gustavo the Hoffenheim won't be able to achieve their goals for that season and under no circumstances would Luis Gustavo be sold the next day the owner of Hoffenheim sold Luis Gustavo and the, the day after that Ralph Rania resigned so I kind of think that, that there's an element of He's a man who, who says what he means. He doesn't kind of play games in the media. And I don't know if the Red Bull ownership would be as prepared to take a chance that Ralph Ranić would walk away, given how kind of omnipresent he is over that club. I, I still think that we're going to see a number of young players looking to move to 
to Leipzig, especially with the style of play. Now Champions League exposure, kind of they, they're setting themselves up as a club who kind of look like they're going to be the ones that are going to be able to challenge Bayern Munich going forward. And and part of that is, I think, playing hardball with teams. You try to keep a hold of your best players for as, for as long as you possibly can. Personally, I don't think the Keita deal is going to go through this season, but after this next season coming, the a release clause comes in, uh, comes into play in his, his contract, which I believe is €50 million. Euros. So it could possibly be that Naby Keita will quite happily sit and play Champions League football this season and then revisit a transfer next year. And Dan, would, would you share that? You know, as I say, you know, Leipzig are obviously a club who are very, very keen, have a very clear philosophy of these young players. But, you know, these kids are, are have ambitions as well. And, you know, I, I can take it off my, my red-tinted glasses here. I can actually see it from, you know, a player's perspective where they're maybe offered their dream move and, and the club are, are holding on to them. And surely it has a detrimental effect somewhere down the line. Yeah, in terms of obviously the Bosman rule in there that he could let himself expire. But I don't know how long his contract is. And I didn't know about this release cause. Um, I was under the impression, just from the outside looking in, that obviously it's Red Bull. They are a brand, they are a business, and they will sell because it's a it's a business. They want profits. But I didn't think it would be this summer. I was under the impression personally that they were going to retain Cater, they were going to get him extra exposure from the Champions League and hope that a bidding war or his value was increased next summer. So it makes it all the more interesting to hear now about this release clause that it kind of confounds everything that they're doing. I'd, I'd heard reports that they were hoping next summer that Real Madrid and Chelsea, and it would drive up the price of this player. So the fact that Lee said he's got a £50 million release clause next summer, that makes it all the more complex and interesting. No, and no doubt it'll rumble on for a few more weeks. It's not going to go away. But listen, Dan, let's move forward here and, and talk about a different area. Moving along to, you know, why some clubs scout and recruit from Pacific regions. You know, we could we could cite maybe Benfica and Porto and their, their links here in Brazil. You know, obviously the Portuguese language and so on comes into play. And certainly, you know, the, the players from down here much prefer to go to, to Latin countries to begin with and so on. Can, can you talk us around some, some of the ins and outs of that? Well, in, in Portugal, what they had for maybe six, seven years, which is no longer in place, was there was a lack of regulations on third-party ownership deals, which is quite common, as you know, living in Brazil, Dave, which is quite common practice there. The only real examples we've got is the, the Tevez and Mascarano West Ham deal many years ago. So they had third-party ownership. They were able to bring in a lot of players over from South America because of that. And also they had looser regulations on work permits. And obviously South American players, Argentines and Brazilians in particular, they have a certain amount of pedigree and value that comes with them. So they're investing in these players, they're giving them a platform in Europe and they can sell these players on. So because of the non-existent work permit regulations, that's why they're targeting these areas. But they also target cheap markets like... In, in Eastern Europe, Red Star, Belgrade and clubs such as that, Benfica I'm thinking of specifically, because that's a cheap market. I'm actually surprised personally how few clubs have links with, with African, the African continent in general. I mean, this is the cheapest market of, of footballers and it's only really the Scandinavian clubs that have taken advantage of this and obviously the French clubs, but the French clubs come from players having family links to France and going over to France personally. You know, Africa's a gold mine. And so you've mentioned there about the Portuguese clubs. That's only because of their work permit regulations. Yeah, very, very relaxed. On, from from Brazil to, to Portugal, it's a, it's a very, very, very simple process if you have a job. And in, in any walk of life, really, if, you, if you're guaranteed a job, basically immigration just looks after itself. Yeah, whereas in Italy, they've got it. They can only sign one for foreign player, non-EU player every year. Whereas in Portugal and other parts, they, they can target this area because of the work permit regulations being so loose. So Lee, uh, you know, your opinion on this one as well, um, you know, it's fascinating. You, you you often find as well, you know, the German clubs will look into to, to Poland and Austria there. And, you know, Lewandowski as a, as a prime example, you know, of maybe markets that, 
that that aren't really scouted heavily. You know, Africa is the most emerging market in football, and, and it sort of beggars belief that Dan's talking the way he is that the, 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 the likes of Premier League clubs are not looking there. It just defies logic. I think as Dan Dan touched upon, Africa really is the the goldmine. It's it's where the, there's a lot of untapped potential in terms of scouting markets at the moment. Um, but you, you spoke about the, the Brazilians going and the Argentines to a less extent going across to Portugal and, and it is cultural similarities so you get the same in, in Germany when they take in players of Polish heritage or Austrian heritage or Swiss it's it's kind of that cultural familiarity, it's kind of that, that sense that you know everything's almost it, it feels like home even though you're, you're moving abroad so in terms of the, the African countries I think it's kind of the issue is being clouded slightly by the amount of kind of private academies that have popped up in recent years in some African countries with, with people coming and kind of treating these players almost as, as business commodities. So ex-players or agents will, will set up academies in Nigeria, Ghana, Senegal, all these, you know, really talent-rich countries and look to, to develop and export players from there. So there are, there are some teams in, for example, Belgium, who have links to Africa and to certain countries in Africa and, and take talent from there to try and get an exposure in Western Europe. But that is simply because, as with Portugal, work permits aren't an issue there. So in likes of Holland and Scandinavian countries, LSXN and Belgium, because there are no work permits, it's easier to get these players in when they're younger and before they've really established themselves. So I think that there are ways that you can look to access the markets. I think that the Premier League clubs would find it difficult because of the work permit regulations. And obviously, nobody over here knows what's going to happen over the next couple of years with, with when Brexit really kicks in, in terms of work permits and, and football players. So that remains to be seen, and that's all kind of still up in the air. So we'll have to wait and see what the outcome is there. But I think that, I think that the sensible Premier League club would perhaps look to make a link with a club in Belgium or in Holland that can take in these players and kind of house them, house them at a club at the, at the top flight or the second flight in European football and see if they can develop there. I think that there's there's value in doing that, but it also has its risks in terms of, you know, you, you have to be careful with multi-owning multi several clubs in, in the same region as Red Bull have found out when they were trying to make sure that they could play Leipzig and Salzburg both in the Champions League. There are ways that they can be done and there is definitely scope for clubs to get better at recruitment in, in terms of from, from African countries, but whether or not that'll happen in the short term, I, I don't know. Even when you look at recruitment for youth teams, as Dan was, was touching on, my, my own personal feeling is that clubs should really only recruit for their youth teams from their immediate region. So, you know, Dan talks about going out and scouting and the competition that he had, but that was competition in what is a talent-rich part of the country. You know, the northwest, the northwest of England is kind of, you've always had players there, just like you used to always have players in Glasgow, but that's kind of tailed off a little bit. And if you look at, like, say, Bayern Munich, for example, they, they will only look to really recruit young players to, as much as possible. They'll only recruit young players from the, the immediate area. I think that the, the big exception in recent years was David Alaba, who they took in from Austria, but that was kind of a, a no-brainer. And again, Austria is culturally similar to Germany, so that wasn't such a huge leap for him. So I think there's differences in, in terms of recruiting from regions, depending if you're looking at youth players or first-team players. What you're saying there as well, we highlight uh, Bayern Munich. Obviously, there's certain clubs where there's a socio-economic desire to promote the local identity. So... Yeah. There's Bavaria over over Germany, you know, and they'll look to promote Bavarian players. You've got the Catalan identity of Barcelona. Roma even, as well. Yeah, and that's why it's very important for these clubs to bring through and promote. And scout, the scouting department places great emphasis, emphasis on signing young guys and recruiting locals with the purpose of them getting into the first team to keep this strong club identity, which I don't really feel in the Premier League... As, as much as you do, obviously, in Europe and Bavaria and Bayern Munich, obviously Barcelona, Athletic Bilbao, clubs like this, they have so much emphasis on, on youth recruitment, more so than probably anywhere else. 
Well, listen, let, let's move it forward into, into our final topic, guys. And, and it's one, I'll, I'll come to you on this one firstly. Uh, you know, what is the biggest difference in scouting and recruiting players from, for the youth team as opposed to, you know, the, the first team as a first team starter? Well, what do you reckon those differences are? I think, I mean, I, I've always been very careful kind of not to be involved at, at youth level. I, I coach grassroots level um, kids, so I kind of never really wanted that to be to be a clash, as it were. For me, when, you, when you're looking, I mean, so Dan will have more experience directly with this, but for me, when you're looking at a youth player, it's difficult to ascertain what that final picture looks like as a player. So you, you're kind of going on your gut a lot more in terms of what this player could look like in X amount of years if he's given adequate coaching. So you, you kind of can try to gauge his potential ceiling as there, and um, what can this player develop into. I think that in years gone by, there's been obviously too big of an emphasis placed in this country on on size and physical size and strength and kind of how far a young player can kick a ball and is he able to to win the ball back from the other team just because he's, he's purely bigger than them all. I think kind of we're we're hopefully moving away from that a little bit now. And the way that I coach my kids that, that may get picked up by, by one of the local professional clubs is that technique and, and the way that you think about the game kind of is more important than that. So kind of you're looking for for the player who's able to receive the ball and receive the ball on the turn so that they've got a, a view of the field and the player who's able to keep his head up, beat a man and then pick a pass out, that kind of those technical attributes come before somebody who can just run really fast or who's just really big and powerful and you know, be an asset for your club's youth team because you want to win games as opposed to developing players. Whereas for the, the first team recruitment level, when, when you're out and you're looking at a player, you've, you've got a very much more a specific picture of that player in mind. So you're kind of looking at him as in, will he fit into our club's first team? Will he fit the way that our first first team manager wants to play tactically, technically, physically? Is he the kind of player who you kind of look to to take in? But it's it's also important. I mean, a tip that I was given very early on was to make sure that when you get to a game, you get there early. So, for example, when I go to a stadium and I pick up my tickets, invariably the first thing they'll say is, "Are oh, the the lounge and the bar are down that way. Go and get your complimentary coffee and, and whatever else. And I'll always say, no, just which way to my seat? So I get up in the stand and I'll sit down and, and kind of watch the warm-ups. The, the amount of information you can pick up from a player at first team level from the way they warm up and the way they interact with, with each of their teammates is really invaluable. For example, I, I was sent to watch a, a forward last season who this, this pre-season, he's moved to an English club for for a, a substantial figure, a six-figure sum. I was sent to watch this forward, and I was watching him in the warm-up, and he kept favouring his back. So as as I noticed that he's, he's kind of he's holding his back, and he's talking to physio, as the game started, I saw that he was playing with a back brace on. So obviously, straight away, your, your picture of that player is changing by the way that he's interacting with the physio, by the way that he's able to identify that he's got an issue, and then by the fact that he plays anyway. So you're kind of building up a picture of the player's mentality, of the way that the player interacts with staff, the, play, the way the player interacts with his teammates. And that also kind of colours the you're reporting the player at the end because everything that he does in the game can kind of be qualified by the fact that he's obviously carrying a knock. So I think that the way that you scout at youth team and scout first team, there are subtle differences. It's almost about as it's as a youth team scout, I think you you're kind of looking you you're trying to look in the crystal ball future and you're trying to see that this player will one day be able to do this or he's got this this innate ability. But as at first team level, I think it's all about the details. And Dan, yourself, would you have a different spin on it, or are, are pretty much the same? Obviously, you, you've you've experienced in this yourself. What, what what would your spin on it be? No, Lee's absolutely bang on right. Um, he talks about the mental side of the game as well as being crucial in senior recruitment. I, I think the easiest way to explain it would be to think of as the FA of coin now. It stems from obviously Portuguese tactical periodization, the four corner model. In that, when you are recruiting at the very first stages, the only things you're really looking at is the physical profile of the player. How does he move? 
obviously is he is he quick is his acceleration good but then you're looking at at the technique as well and that that is not position specific so you're looking at a guy even if he's playing up front in this youth game if he's touching on them two aspects there bring him in and two or three years from now he could become a defender you know so that's that's the profile that you're looking for there as they start to get older then tactical comes into it and that's that's purely decision making so you're recruiting guys who have advanced decision making that when to shoot and when to pass and even now you could even at, at the Premier League level you have some players who can do it all and they can put a ball on another player's foot from 50 yards away with a perfect pass but it's the decision making can they do this consistently and is that the right thing to do in the context and the phase of the game so that's what you're looking to recruit then the older youth ages is you're looking at these guys who are making good decisions. Then you come to the the mental side of the game. And I think this most affects the senior level. So at Juventus, this is something they, when I met, they spoke about a lot. They place great emphasis on is the desire, the work rate, the determination of the player. So if you think of like Tevez, Vidal, Mandzukic, how do you then gauge this as a club and Lee's spoken there, perfect example that he, he gets there early and he's watching the player in the warm-up. Another way, you talk to fans, or the clubs talk to fans, they talk to people around the player who know what he's like and his desire. They'll even ask, can we go and see him in training? You know, So they're so well-connected because certain clubs want to sell to Juventus because they know they're going to get a big profit, the biggest profit that they'll get from any other sale in Italy. They'll welcome the scouts to come and watch the player in training and see what he's actually like. So this is how you're looking to um, assess the mental side of the game. And it's difficult when you're signing. If you're a club and you're looking to sign a youth player for senior football, it doesn't really happen that often because they go from this sanitised youth environment where quite often there's no shouting, there's no parental involvement, which is a good thing because it used to be quite hostile in a previous era. But they go from this sanitised environment to them playing in, in front of 40,000 fans and it's so easy for them to buckle and to cave and their social development maybe isn't advanced enough. So, yeah, the, the huge thing that you're looking for adult football because a lot of players have the same levels of technique, similar decision-making. It's, it's the mental desire and how they act and how they lead on the pitch and it's it's difficult to measure. So let's take Jordan Henderson. Is that when he first came to Liverpool, you, you'd say that his mental side of the game, he didn't look like a leader on the pitch, but he's grown into that. And obviously people working at the club had spoken to those of Sunderland. I think he was an England captain at the time in the youth divisions, a Sunderland youth captain. And they, they will have known that full well when they signed him, that he had this mental fortitude to grow into the role, if that makes any sense at all. That's fun. I would question myself, Dan. But, but that, what do I know? <laughs> Lee, have you have you anything more to add on to what Dan has said there? No, I think that Dan makes a lot of good points. Um, I personally do see it with Jordan Henderson. I think that he's he's kind of he is a, a mentally strong kind of kind of character. Whether he's technically good enough for for the role he's got at the moment is debatable. But I'm not a Liverpool fan, so I'm saying well out of that to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to hear Dan, you know, stand up for him because it's an area of his game that I honestly see as a weakness. I think he's as a leader, I consider him quite watery to be honest with you. Um, some of the times, but but as I say, what what do what do I know? Listen, guys, is there anything else you want to bring to the table before I close this out? Please feel free. I'll just say, just to legitimise my point on Anderson. Because there'll be a lot of people who share your opinion. Here we're going, Sky Wars. <laughs> a lot of people have your opinion, Dave. But if you're watching off the ball as well, he's always the one who's questioning the referee's decision. He's the one who's getting in players' faces. The little arguments he has on the pitch, that he never used to do that when he came to Liverpool. And there was a spell where we were going to offload him to Fulham. And he was no way, in shape or form, a leader in that sense. I feel like now he is... I'm struggling to think of other examples in that Liverpool team the one who's got the strength to really try and motivate those around him. Whether that works or not, and whether, as Lee says, is he, he technically he the one to do it. He doesn't have much of a help. He doesn't have much to look up to. You know, I consider the current squad to be so devoid of, of real sort of warriors. 
you know, like I grew up in the uh, dad of Graham Sunnis, and, mm. and you know, I know I know it's a different era and a different different time, but just that win it. I just don't see that win at all cost mentality, which which I used to see in Gerard, and I think that's maybe where the disconnect comes along, Dan. I think as well uh, that that stems from youth football and that that win at all cost mentality of the nineties and early two thousands often led to bookings and red cards and suspensions and a little bit over the top that we still get in Ross Barkley now. So the kind of players who were getting promoted didn't really display that attitude, that Graham Sooness attitude, you know, that famous Gerard attitude that was possible to come through with. And Carragher as well, when they came through, would they still have that opportunity now when the game is a lot more about anticipation and interceptions than it is about throwing into tackles and being aggressive in a sense? I see, I see your point exactly. So how do you display this leadership in a contemporary way? It's difficult, but I do think that Henderson's the, the, probably one of the only ones in the team who, who really can show that. And he gets away with it a bit because he's got the captain's armband, he's protected. He gets in the referee's face a lot. He wouldn't have done that when he first came to the club. And I think they knew he would grow into the role, is what I'm trying to say. Well, listen, I have one final question. And it's, it's something that we discuss here on our South American show. And, and, and it's, it'd be fascinating to hear both your input on it. You know, it seems at times that, that this region in South America is, is pretty much ignored for scouting. You know, there's the odd late developing gem down here. Um, you know, Carlos Sanchez, prime example, the Uruguayan, uh, Chumacero there at the strongest at the minute. And none of the European clubs are even looking at that. And certainly they could do a job, but there doesn't seem to be a great deal. You know, Dan, maybe maybe from your perspective at, at your time at Benfica, you know, what what's what's the thought on South America from a scouting perspective? That it is a gold mine. The development that players get there is one that we don't get in Europe. In that, obviously, the young guys here, there's less hours playing football. Um, there's too many different barriers to participation there. Constance, like you know, they're, they're in the first team down here at sixteen. You, you know, we we see it there. Vinicius Junior, prime example at the minute down Flamengo. They get their opportunity from like Phil Coutinho was in in the Vasco team at sixteen. So you know, you, you can you can scout these players having had you know hundreds of games under their belt, so to speak. But yet it still seems to go under the radar. I think that's more the point I'm trying to make. Could it be a personality thing though that a lot of these these guys who come from Brazil they're quite flawed. They come from poor backgrounds to then getting this type of stardom. And you look at even the original Ronaldo, you've got Adriano and guys like that, that it's really quite difficult, isn't it? Are you going to get a gem or are you going to get someone who's out clubbing and partying all the time? Maybe the, the clubs know about these players. I, I, I've not heard them, to be honest, Dave. But maybe there's something in the background there. Because um, like you say, there's no reason why you wouldn't try and scout and, and sign players who are performing well in South America because it is the, the place to get talents from nowadays yeah and you find like countries like bolivia just going completely you know under the radar and, and these players can be picked up for you, you know like ridiculously cheap amounts of money lee uh, you know from your perspective do you, do you do you have an opinion on it yeah i think i think as dan touched upon i think a lot of clubs see it very much as boom or bust i think that adriano was was very much the, the poster boy for the, the kind of bust side of things and i mean his his talent was absolutely phenomenal when he moved across to European football with Inter Milan, first of all, he he should have gone on to become, I think, one of one of the the great strikers. But the mentality side of things wasn't quite there as Dan touched upon. He came from a really poor background, and he struggled to kind of make the adaptation to to suddenly living in this completely different culture and and having money to spend and and not having to kind of there was no one to check his. His, his spending or the the things he was doing in his private life, but I think when you almost if you take Brazil and Argentina apart, I think it's very much undervalued the rest of South American football. You, you look at some of the players at the moment who are in Colombia, for example. The Colombian league is, is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. You saw Athletic Nacional go on and win the Libertadores just um, just their season there, and some some of the players that they had in, at that time, some of the players that are still there are incredible prospects. But I think that it's it's more difficult for for certain teams or certain profiles to take a chance in these players. But as if you look at a club like Udinese in Italy, they they made their name, they made an absolute killing by by scouting these countries. They they were in Bolivia, they were in Venezuela, where they took they took a goalkeeper Romo from from Venezuelan football a few years ago, and they, they were making these kind of kind of lower profile signings that elected to Sanchez. When he came over from from Argentinian football to Udinese, 
that he was kind of developed by Udinese and Udine, that he was given a chance to kind of come along a little bit more slowly, kind of because the profile of Udinese is a lot lower than it is. It likes if, if Juventus go into, I mean, if Juventus go and buy a South American player, then suddenly the, the world's attention, the media attention are on that player, and it can be kind of difficult to live in that goldfish bowl. So I think there's a huge there's a huge capacity for clubs to take advantage of those markets, especially the likes of Uruguay, the likes of Chile, the likes of Colombia. They're kind of the leagues that I know a little bit more about. I wouldn't know quite as much when you go into Paraguay, Bolivia, Ecuador. But again, there will be bargains there. It's just a question of whether the players can can kind of make the leap to European football and take it in their stride or, or if there might be psychological barriers there that, that can be mitigated, I think, by these players, first of all, going to like Brazil or Argentina and experiencing a bigger league. Then I think that bigger clubs in Europe are more likely to take a chance on these players if they're coming from these kind of bigger South American nations as opposed to just coming straight out of the Bolivian League or the Ecuadorian League where where you're just not quite sure what you're going to get. No, I think it's just a terrible frustration. I say we do we do the South American show, and, and we often talk about the fact that there just seems to be no interest from Europe, and some some cracking players, and uh, they may or may not do the business in Europe, but certainly at the price, certainly in today's silly market, yeah, they they certainly do represent a, a worthy gamble, you know. But listen, I think that will just about do us for this uh, first episode. And in closing, I'll just run around the table. Lee, first of all, where can we find you on Twitter? And anything you're working on, anywhere you want to plug, just feel free. You can find me on Twitter at FM Analysis. This week, I've got a piece out on Eat, Sleep, Drink, Football uh, on Peter Boss, the new British Dortmund coach, and kind of looking at his, his tactical style when he was at Ajax last season and looking at what Borussia Dortmund can expect from him going forward. I think I've got two, maybe three articles planned on Eat, Sleep, Drink Football next week. So just keep an eye out. there. There's new content on there every week, and we've got some, we've managed to get some really talented guys in. I think uh, Tom Robinson, who who does quite a lot for World Football Index and on the South American he podcast, yeah. He's, he's one of our regular writers with a lot of player profiles and South American players, so I'm learning quite a lot from reading his pieces. I'd, I'd recommend checking them out. Indeed, and they actually run um, you, there, there's actually three of them out this week. There's Luan of Gremio, um, Farinas of Caracas, the, the young uh, Venezuelan goalkeeper who's yep. Quite a wonder kid. And there'll be another one out, a surprise, tomorrow. They're doing three a week at the minute. Those are those are excellent. I think there's about six or seven in total on our feed there. So if you're into to, to looking at players specifically from South America and what's up and coming, it's there on the feed for you. Dan, I know you'll have a bit of, bit of plugging to do, but where can we find you, first of all, on Twitter and far away with anything you want to plug? Um, well, the book is got a Twitter. It's Europe Game Book because someone had taken the European Game Book audaciously. So, yeah, Europe Game Book and yeah uh, buy the book because I don't do any of writing <laughs> anymore so uh, yeah if you could buy the book I'd be very very appreciative of that definitely go out and buy it it's a great read thank you Lee uh, and I think we're, we're going to do a bit of a preview on it uh, in the next week or so maybe we can get a get a bit of, get our heads together and get a wee bit of a pod put together and give people a bit of an insight on what's actually in that book Dan yeah I'd like to do that and that'd be good I'm sure the listeners would like to find out some more about it as well absolutely but we'll get our heads together and get that sorted sometime in the next seven days from my own point of view as I say check out those scouting podcasts um, on uh, Tom and Austin do they're, they're, they're an excellent listen um, um, Luan won this week. Uh, he's back in focus again. Apparently, uh, Gremio have said he can be moved to uh, to Europe for 17 million euro if they if he's loaned back to uh, to Gremio till the end of the season, the Brazilian season, should I say, which is January, which represents amazing value in, in today's market. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that one. So there's a full profile on there. I'll say we have a Mexican pod up at the minute with a new series of In My Life. Uh, a couple of episodes of that have gone up. And I say, all your usual pods will be back with you. Um, the seasons are starting to kick in. And as I say, I've done, gone around some of the EPL clubs this week as well. I've just released one on West Ham, did Watford yesterday. There's a very good one there, a joint one between Everton and Manchester United. Some, some interesting stuff in those. So there's plenty of stuff to keep you listening on WFI. Just a real massive thanks to Dan for taking the time to come on and talk to us. A pleasure listening to the two of you. And, and Lee, I'm really, really excited, you know, to be, to be doing this long term with you and, and going on in the future. I think we've got a, a really decent podcast here. But as I say, we should be back again next week, hopefully with the second edition. And until then, just thank you to the guys and thank you to the listener. And 